Thank you, bud. Usually I make some comments after the testimonies because there's always something good to talk about. But actually, he almost preached my sermon for me, so I'll bring it up later in the sermon because there's some good stuff to work with there. So thanks about a lot. And I've been, had the opportunity to be in Bud's small group and watch a lot of that happen over the past however many years. And so really grateful to have his story shared and uh, to see how God's worked in his life. And we're going to pick up on that theme a little bit later on in our service as well. This morning... We have some guests with us. I just want to recognize. We don't usually do this and all, but we, you know, so don't worry if you're a guest with us. I'm not recognizing all of you, but I am recognizing a few of you. So, um, uh, so Jeremy and uh, Minsu Basar, they coming from you know Penn State. Yes, go ahead and say it. We are there. We go. All right. Wow, you guys are not Lion fans, are you? Okay. And so they've brought some guests back with them from school, some international students. And so first of all, I want to thank everyone who hosted international students this weekend. Really glad for that. I want to thank Rami, who he's the director who brought them down to hang out with this weekend. Thank you, Rami, for bringing them back. We're really grateful for the opportunity. We have guests now. We're, we have guests from China. Is that right? How many got Chinese guests? How many guests do we have from China? Very good. All right. Great. Good. And then I understand we have guests from Pakistan. Is that right? All right, very good. All right. And then Paraguay. Is that right? We have Paraguay. Oh, there we go. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> and then one more. What are the... India. Right here. There, India. <laughs> good, good. Thank you. We're really grateful for all of you being with us today. Very much so. So glad to have you with us today. And um, I hope that today's uh, time here in the Word... Uh, actually makes some sense to you because I probably would say all kinds of American things. You're going to go, what was he talking about? Ask the person sitting next to you and they'll explain it, okay? All right. <laughs> Open up your Bibles at Genesis 30. Genesis 30. And where we're at in our story here of Genesis is Genesis is the story of beginnings. It talks to us about the beginning of the creation. It talks to us about the beginning of God's plan. It talks to us about the beginning of God's plan then he goes from creation in Genesis, and he begins to, and he talks about how he created everything. And then he goes down to how he created man. And then, he, how he, and then man swells, and the population covers the earth. And then he selects one man among all that population and says, this man I am going to use to exalt myself and to make my name famous. And he selects, he selects that one man. That one man's name is Abraham. And he says, and through you, Abraham... I will give you descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sand on the sea, on the shore. And he says, and through you, Abraham, all the world will be blessed. And so Genesis is the story, from where we're at in our story, Genesis is the story where he has taken that one man, Abraham, and now the story is telling us how God prepared this family and how he's beginning to use this family and how he's shaping this family and putting them in a position to use them. And the interesting thing about this is that there are so many misconceptions about the Bible and the people that God uses. Because the people, you know, people think, well, the Bible is kind of like, it's like that book and it's super holy. And it is that. It is the book that is really the revelation of Christ and God in the, in the Bible. But let me tell you, tell you something. And so people have this thing, well, God is so holy. But the Bible has so many unholy parts in it because it's telling the story of men and women. And those men and women make choices 
to rebel against God. They make choices to do their thing instead of the thing that God asked them to do. What is really amazing in this story is that God continues to use these people who continue to rebel, continue to exert their will against God's will. He continues to use them. And so where we are in our story today is that there's been Abraham. He's like the grandfather. He's the, the first one. And then he's had a son, Isaac. And now the son, Isaac, has had a son, Jacob. And now we are being introduced to Jacob's family. He's just taken two wives, Rachel and Leah. And Rachel and Leah have begun to have babies. And to understand the backdrop a little bit further is that Rachel and Leah come from a family that is very crazy. I mean, they could make a sitcom and it'd be like Real Wives of Jacob. (laughs) Because that's what these two women are like. They're very dysfunctional, a lot of strife. And they're not godly. And yet God is using them. And so here we are in our story. Jacob has just taken one wife and he's been tricked. He's been deceived and now he has a second wife. And both of these wives are sisters. Now in our story here in chapter thirty. Where we are at a place where these sisters have begun to have children. Last week we were reading in chapter 29 where Leah had just had four children. And in chapter 30 here, we open up with one statement, chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister Leah, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Now, that's not the first time Jacob has heard that kind of statement. Jacob's mother had said that many years ago as well. When she was conniving to get Jacob sent away to rescue him from the anger of Esau, his brother. Jacob's brother had intended to kill him. Jacob's mother says, I'll send you away to a safe place and you can go find a wife there. And so Jacob's mother had said to Jacob's father, says, I I might as well just die if my son takes a wife from one of these local women. I might as well just die. And so she's saying the same thing here in this chapter. Rachel is, she's saying, I might as well die if you don't give me children. So Jacob has heard this statement before. What has happened is, is these two sisters, who are both the wives of one man, have now entered into almost like a competition, a baby competition. They both want to bear children, and it's important to both of them that they bear more children than the other. And so right now, if it's like a baby competition, right now, the score is Leah 4, Rachel 0. She has had, Leah has had four sons, Rachel has had no children, but it's early in the game, and Rachel has time to catch up. Rachel needs to, to bring someone in from the bench. And so she brings in Bilhah. Bilhah is her maid. She's, she is her servant. And she brings in Bilhah, and she says, Bilhah, I would like for you to sleep with my husband and bear children on my behalf. Now, that might sound really weird to us, but culturally, it is appropriate. It's not unheard of. Sarah had done it many, many years before in our text where she had taken her maid, Hagar, given them to Abraham, and Abraham had had a child with Hagar named Ishmael. And Abraham loved Ishmael like he was his own son. Well, he was his own son, but Abraham loved him no different than he loved Isaac. He cared for him. And so here we are in our text where Rachel now gives Bilhah, her maid, to her husband. And she says to her, go, husband, you can have my maid. Have children with my maid, and those children will be my children. 
Now, it was always allowed, it was always acceptable for the wife to choose whether she would take the child or not. If it was a daughter, she wouldn't be interested in it because the important thing was to bear sons. And so the goal was to bear sons. And so she was a servant, a concubine is what they were called. They were like an elevated servant in the household. So by verse 8, when we get to verse 8 here, so Rachel, she, Rachel has had two children by her maid. And the score now has become in the baby game, Leah 4, Rachel 2. But Leah is still in the lead. And as a matter of fact, you read in verse 8 here, it says, Rachel says, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Leah's not going to allow her sister to pull a Tom Brady and come from behind and put a win on her, right? So she pulls out the Philly special. Leah brings in Zilpha, her maid. You see her in verse 9. So when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpha and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's maid Zilpha bore Jacob a son. And pretty soon, here we are, by the time we move down in the text a little bit further, Zilpha has given two more sons to Jacob, and now Leah has taken the lead, and Leah has continued to extend her lead, six to two. In verse 14, now to keep the baseball theme kind of going, in verse 14 we have a performance enhancement substance being introduced into the game. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field. Reuben was a son of Leah, and he went out into the field. It was time for the wheat. He was out in the field, and he found mandrakes in the field, and he brought them to his mother, Leah. And when Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes, verse 15. But she said, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Let's explain this because this is another unusual thing to us in our culture and our time. Mandrakes obviously were considered to be an aphrodisiac, a fertility drug in a sense a romantic potion. And matter of fact, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, is referred to as the lady of mandrakes. And one of the distinctives of mandrakes is a very strong fragrance. And so, as is often the case, matter of fact, we're going to pick it up a couple of times in our text today. The words in this passage are more interesting in Hebrew than they are in English. Mandrake That word there, and I'm sorry, mandrake in Hebrew is dudayim. But the word, there's a root word for love in Hebrew, dudai. And so here you see the play on the words that they have in Hebrew. Matter of fact, later on in the Song of Solomon, there's a a passage in Song of Solomon where where the writer says this. He says, I will give my love, my dudai, to you as a dudayim gives off their fragrance. It's a play on words. And what he's saying here is, it's just like a mandrake is always going to smell, I will always love you. You can't stop that plant from smelling. You can't stop me from loving you. Right there. Now, that is a love song, right? So while the mandrake was used for some medicinal purposes, probably, its romantic benefits are in question. And and matter of fact, you might even note that Leah slept with her husband that night. And given the arrangement between these two sisters and the competition and the jealousy, there's no doubt that Rachel did not follow suit very quickly after. But it's Leah the one who did not eat, who conceives. Rachel does not conceive for many years later. And in verses 18 and 19, Leah gives birth to two more sons, bringing the score eight to two. The main character in the remainder of Genesis enters our story in verses 22 through 24. Turn there with me. Look at it in verses 22 through 24. 
And then God remembered Rachel and gave heed to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. That's another really, really interesting word there. God has taken away my grace. The Hebrew for taken away is asaph. And that's, in, you know, and that's what this is written in originally. We've translated it to English for our benefit to be able to read it. But the original language, the, the word for taking away is asaph. The word that he, she names her son Joseph, it means may he add. She says it right there. May he add or may he add another son to me. It seems somewhat prophetic because later on, in many years, from many, many years later, Joseph is taken away by the brothers. And then later on, he's added back. There's the words, God, you know, the, the, uh, the, under, the, under the inspiration of God's spirit, the author, and using the language, and he's, he's playing with words, and, and, and the words are being used, and they reveal things, and they talk about things, and they're, they're incredibly interesting. So where are we at in our, our baby competition? Leah is still in the lead with eight to three. Eight ch- sons to her three sons for Rachel. Now, there is another interesting mention here in verse 21 to take note of. Let's look at it. Verse 21 and it's speaking about Leah. Let's start in 20. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because, I've given, born, because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. And after she bore a daughter named Dinah. You notice that? Just one mention of this daughter named Dinah. In the context of family trees, in the context of genealogies in Scripture, have you ever noticed that they nearly always are only male-focused. You can look at this one here, and you're going to see right there that it is really all male-focused. They really are only mentioning the men. And matter of fact, the author even only records the men, the male babies. But if you'll notice right down here, it says by Leah, and it lists the sons that she had, but then it lists Dinah over here on this side of it. It lists Dinah right there. The reason Dinah is mentioned is because the author knows that there's another part of the story that we will come into later on. And you, you'll find it, if you want to lead, read on later, um, verse 34, or chapter 34, rather. There is an incident that happens with Dinah in the city of Shechem. And we're not going to read it today, but there's an incident that happens with Dinah in the city of Shechem, and her brothers step in, and it's just a more unfolding of this story of this family and these sons and these brothers. And so the author includes Dinah in here so that when you get to chapter 34, there's not this thing where you're like going, what sister? We didn't know there was a sister. We didn't know there was a daughter. Where, who is she? So the daughter, the author purposefully mentions Dinah in here because he knows that later on, many years later, something happens with this daughter. And it's important to note that she was born. And then it's important to note what happens to her later on. The last section of our chapter here steers away from the battle of the sisters, and it moves to a different battle zone, a different competition, and that competition is between Jacob and Laban. Now, Rachel and Leah, sisters, right? They're sisters. Their father's name is Laban. And Laban has, from the very beginning of this relationship between his son-in-law, has always been dishonest. He's always been deceiving. He's always been trying to trick 
Jacob, he's always been trying to set up whatever scenario they were working on. He was setting it up in such a way that it would benefit him. That it's not uncommon, and so in many countries it's not but you uncommon, that when you get married you have a dowry. You know, you, you give a gift or you give a financial gift or something else. And it's, and it's whether you say it or not, but it's, it's what you give to the father-in-law as you take the, the daughter into marriage. But Jacob showed up in this country with nothing. And so he had nothing to give. So instead of having something to give, he worked to pay off that dowry so that he could marry Laban's daughters. And so he worked for seven years for each of the daughters. And there is this part of that story there, we'll go into today, but there's a part of that story there where Laban tricked Jacob, and that's how he ended up marrying two sisters. He only wanted to marry one. But Laban tricked Jacob, and he took 14 years of wages. The commentators, the experts, the cultural anthropologists, people who know this time frame, say that that's probably like three times more than what was typical for working for a wife. So he's worked now 14 years. And in verse 25, now it came about when Rachel was born, had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I might go to my own place in my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you and let me depart. For you yourself know my service, which I've rendered to you. So he comes to him and he says, look, I've fulfilled my deal with you. I've served 14 years here, probably a little extra. I don't know. He goes, but it's my time to go. I paid my debt. I got two wives. I got lots of kids. I got some sheep and some goats. I'm ready to go back to my country. And Laban, Laban is like the very first telemarketer. Have you ever noticed when you get a phone call? Hi, sir, I'd like to talk to you about insurance. I have insurance, but you don't have our kind of insurance. And it doesn't matter what you say, they have an answer for it. I mean, they do not take no for an answer, do they? And they just keep saying, but what about this? Let me ask you this. If you, if you won't give us $100, would you give us 75 If you don't give us 75 would you give us 50 And they keep working you down. They're just trying to get something out of you. Laban was the master trainer for all telemarkers through all history. And so what he says to him is this. If it pleases you, stay with me. I have, deci- I have defined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. Verse 27, he goes, Stay. Come on, come on, come on. This is working out well. Come on, stay, stay. Because, see, I can tell that because of you, God has blessed me. And so what he's saying is, this has been a really good deal. I don't want to see it end. What can we do here to make a deal with each other? And he says in verse 28, name your wages and I'll give it to you. Verse 29, Jacob says, but he said to him, you yourself know how I've served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when I shall go, but now, when shall I provide for my own household? And here is the telemarketer working in verse 31. What shall I give you? Come on, come on, come on. Let's work this out. What can I give you? And Jacob says, this is what you can give me. No, he says, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Jacob knows who he's working with. Jacob is really cut from the same cloth. Jacob is much like him. And Jacob knows that if he gives him anything, there's strings attached. There's going to be something there that he's, it's going to be another trip. There's going to be a trap door. There's going to be something that he didn't see coming. So don't, I'm not going to take anything from you. And instead he says, I'll work for what I take from you. And now all of a sudden, 
Jacob has turned the table. This is classic. This is just like Princess Bride, iodine. What is it? You know, the poison drink. And they keep turning the table and he goes, but this is exactly where we're at here. Some of you are like, have I seen Princess Bride? Have you seen Princess Bride? That's what you're saying to your parents. Have I seen this? Iocane, thank you. I knew it was Iocane. It's a, yes, Iocane. It is, it is scentless and tasteless, correct? That's right. All right, I'm sorry. If you're from India or China or Paraguay or something, you've got to watch that movie this weekend, okay? All right. And it's just like that where you have these two masters who are dealing with each other and are trying to trick the other one. And so here Jacob all of a sudden has turned the table, and now he says, now we're in my area of expertise. I am a shepherd. I know sheep. And, see, and he says this, I'll tell you what I'll do. Let's divide the flock. You keep all the white sheep and all the dark goats, and I'll take all the spotted sheep and goats. Now, so any, any, any sheep that look like that, he goes, I'll take that one. Because sheep are supposed to be and typically are all white. They're like, they look like that. That's what they usually look like. Now, I don't know this from experience, but I read this on Wikipedia. And again, they are the authorities, so I know this to be true. And so sheep are supposed to be white, and predominantly they are. And so Jacob sets up a scenario. He goes, I'll take all the spotted sheep and all the spotted goats, and I'll take them and I'll call them mine. You can keep all the ones that are typical and ones that can be considered more desirable. And by doing this, what he's done all of a sudden is he set up a scenario where he's going to take a very few sheep, and he's going to give him all the others. And anytime someone walks outside and they look among the flocks, they'll go, oh, all of that over there is Laban's because they're all the right color. And all those ugly spotted ones, those are Jacob's. Those, that's his stuff. And Jacob has set up a scenario now where he cannot be tricked, where the rules cannot be changed, where no one can walk out there and go, oh, Jacob, 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 I think you have a few of my sheep here. Let me just look at these right here. And he's going to go, no, you can't say that because you see that spotted one? That was in our deal, remember? That's our deal. That's my sheep. That white one, that one's yours. It belongs to you. It always has belonged to you. I didn't take it. It's yours. And so now all of a sudden, Jacob has set up a scenario where he is the master of the game. He understands how to play it, and he understands how to manage it. And here's another little interesting thing here. White in Hebrew is Laban. Think about that. And here... Here is Laban taking all the Laban sheep. Eh, that was just a bonus, okay? All right, so I like that stuff, all right? So Jacob takes his herd, and he takes him three days away. You see in verse 36. So let's start in, 30, uh, let's start in 34. And so Laban said, good, let it be according to your word. So he removed on that day the striped and the spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats and everyone with white on it and all the black ones among the sheep and gave them to, to the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fled, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. See, here's Jacob. He's like going, I've been down this road with you before. You're not going to do this to me again. Matter of fact, I'm going to take all my little puny runts of the litter, and we're going to go three days away just so you can say, just so you can't come back and say, I did something. And I'm going to stay here and take care of yours, and I'm going to send my guys, and they're going to take care of mine, and they're going to be three days away, and nothing's going to happen here. We're going to be good with each other, right? And Laban's like going, right, yep, you're right, you're right, you're right. Uh-huh, nothing's going to happen. So, now then, 
The next part of our chapter here talks about from 37 through 43. It talks about how he began to breed the sheep to benefit himself. And it talks about how he would take rods, wooden, wooden poles, and he would put them around the watering troughs, and he would breed them around those watering troughs and all. Let me just say this about that, and that's that when you read the research on that passage, they'll go, that goes from being absolute pure superstition that you put rods of certain wood and you peel the bark off and you put it around the watering holes. It goes from absolute superstition to, to that that's what made them fertile to there might be some really interesting genetic planning involved in that. Somewhere in the mix of all that. But needless to say, Jacob knew his skill. He knew his craft. He knew how to breed for the stronger animals. And so over the course of many years now, what happens is you come to this place in verse 43. And so the men became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So Jacob's plan is working. Matter of fact, you can read ahead in verse 1 of 31. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father, he has now made all his wealth. That's exactly what Jacob thought was going to happen. You've taken away all that's ours. Now Jacob's going to go back and say, I don't see a white one in the whole bunch. All of these are mine. This is what we agreed to. He knew where this was going to go. He set it up so he could defend himself and state his position. Now then, two things to highlight in this chapter. Number one, we will see God, what we see in this chapter is God developing his plan for a nation that would become his people. A select nation. What we're seeing is this is the, this is the seeds of the nation of Israel. So it doesn't matter where you are in this room today from whatever country. Everyone's heard of Israel. And these babies that are born in this chapter are the fathers of Israel. And you see right here of God setting the stage to take a family, to grow a family and make them a nation, a nation that he says is my select nation, my people, Israel. You see that happening in here. And it's going to continue to unfold as the story goes on. What we have is, is by, the end of this, by, the, by the close of the chapter, 11 children have been born, and we see the beginnings of the 12 tribes that would become the nation of Israel. Right there you see on the screen. There are the babies we just saw born. Judah, Reuben, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Issachar. And there's a couple more still to come. You see right there, that is the beginning of Israel and these 12 babies, or these babies that have just been born. You see that's happening here. And what's going to happen is from these, these, these names right here is going to come the Messiah, Jesus. But there is another thing happening here. God is not only preparing for the future of the nation of Israel, he's preparing Jacob to become the father of of that nation. We're going to see in the next few chapters how Jacob has changed from who we saw him to be in chapter 27, where he stole his brother's blessing, where he stole his brother's birthright. And he willingly did so, and he actively participated in that deception. We're going to see him in chapter 27 of being that man till we get all the way through here in chapter 32 and chapter 34 to being a man who's changed. And so by the time he leaves Laban, 
By the time he leaves Padam Aran, he is going to have spent nearly 20 years there. And in those 20 years, God has been changing him. Change is often very slow. As a matter of fact, we don't see it in our text. And I believe that Jacob didn't see it very much either. Not until he has his wrestling match with God later on in our story. But change is exactly like that. It is slow. It is incremental. And whether it's in our weight, in our cholesterol count, in our muscle tone, how fast you can run a mile, it always happens slowly and very often without us ever noticing that it's happening. And that is not uncommon for the way that God chooses to work in the lives of people. You can look through the pages of Scripture and you can see time after time where the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments, where Moses was on the backside of the Bible for 40 years before the Ten Commandments ever came into being and before he was ever chosen as the man of God. Forty years, we don't know anything. He was just on the backside of the desert tending sheep. Job. We read about Job in, in, the, in the book of Job here. We read his story, and we come to a place where all of a sudden it just says, this guy, he is not like the rest. This guy is special. We don't know how he got there. There were years of silence of God doing that. David. David is not out there pumping iron to become a a giant killer. David is tending sheep. That's all he's doing. He's just doing what he was told to do. He's just tending sheep. But in tending those sheep, God was building the character into him. God was building the, the, uh, the experiences he needed. God was building insight into him. God was building a relationship with that young man. So that that day then he goes out, when he goes out as the runt of the litter, when he goes out as the littlest boy, the youngest son, the one with the least amount to offer, he's gone to just go feed his bigger brothers to it or fighting the war. And it is there in that moment that David realizes and everyone else that all those years tending sheep were not wasted. As he goes up against Goliath and all of a sudden breaks into the scene. In the story of Jesus, he's 30 years old before we really begin to know what he's all about. In the story of Paul, he comes to Christ, and that story where God confronts him, and then there's three years, we don't know what happened there. Paul makes a few references to this, some things that happened there. There are often years and years of silence There are often years and years of just mundane, everyday activity. And that's where we want to bring Bud's story into play. Because Bud talks about how all I did was serve on a Navy ship. All I did was this. All I did was that. I was just doing this in his demonstrative Italian kind of way. You know what I mean? Um, and, And all along the way, though, all of those little episodes of his life, all those little chapters of his life, he was taking those chapters to make them the bigger story to bring him to the place where he's at today. 
Now, and we can look around this room, and there are many of you who are like going, my life is wasted. You know what I do with my life? I change diapers at a preschool all day long. What is there that is eternally significant in that? All I do is draw plans. That's all I do. I draw plans of buildings for other people, rich people, to buy. That's what I do. All I do, and you fill in the blank. And many of us are like going, my life doesn't matter. I don't do anything important. I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a nobody doing nothing. And I would say to you that that is exactly where God wants you and I. Because if I took the time to tell you my story, it would be the same thing. Of 18 years in an advertising industry and then coming into ministry and having a particular time frame of ministry that I thought was wasted and I thought I was a failure in. But it was that time frame exactly that I, and looking back now, is that time frame exactly those eight years in that ministry that God used to prepare me for pastorate ministry. So, what about you? What about you? The reason why David was able to step into this scenario he did, the reason why Moses was able to step into what he did, the reason why any of us, the reason why Bud was able to step into the scenario he did was because he was diligent about all those little things and all, until finally one day when he heard God call, he said, I can do that. I'll go. Isaiah chapter 6. Here I am, Lord, send me. That's what he said. God called. He goes, who will I send? Who will go? Is there anyone out there at all? And Isaiah said, excuse me, excuse me, here I am. I'll go. I'll go. You don't know, ever know, when that day comes, when he says, what about you, Rod? Yeah. You don't ever know. And so your life right now is not being wasted when you are paying attention to what he's doing, when you are diligent, he's preparing you. Now, right here, I can already hear someone saying, well, Tim, I don't really believe that. I don't agree with that because what about the person who's in rebellion? What about the person who comes here every single Sunday, but they don't really invest in their Christian life? You're right. You're really right. But God even takes those seasons of life and he uses them. And you walk out of those seasons of life and you look back and you go, I can see where God carried me here. I can see where God provided here. I can see where God was still in my life here. I can see this. I can see this. And I can see this. And God had never left me. And, and what's going to happen, even for those of you who are sitting in this room right now, who are maybe you're not in rebellion, but you just choose to be apathetic. You're wrong. You're in sin. I fear for you. I'll just say that. But God is still going to use this period in your life later on. And then there's some people in this room right now who have, don't have any idea about really what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God is still at work in your life as well. And you're going, no, he's not because I don't talk to him. Do you think you need to talk to him for him to be at work at you? Do you think, that you, do you, think you need to talk to the IRS for them to be paying attention to what you're doing? No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to be in a relationship with him for him to be deeply in love with who you are and deeply desiring to come and have a relationship with you and enter into your life and dramatically change it. 
And there are some of us who come here frequently, if not every week maybe, who are in that place where they're like going, I'm not going to do that yet. And I'm saying, he's waiting on you, and he's waiting on you graciously. This morning, all that we've talked about here has to do with the fact that at one time, many years ago, many, many years ago, centuries ago, God sent his own son named Jesus to pay a penalty for men and women and children that they could not pay themselves. And what God did with that was he didn't come and he didn't say, this is what I'm doing. I want you to begin to, you know, to do penance. I want you to begin to do things to please me. And when I'm pleased with you, I'll grant you my favor. He didn't say that at all. He didn't say that you have to like, and I, I'm sorry, I think I always use, I need to find some other examples. I, he didn't say that you have to crawl across glass. He doesn't say that you have to like burn incense. He didn't say that you have to sit in these seats every week. He didn't say that you have to give money every week. He didn't say that you have to help little old ladies across the street every week. He didn't say that any of that kind of He says there's nothing you can do at all that can please me. Nothing you can do to please me. That's what God says. He says, but I sent my son who lived a perfect, sinless life, and that son lived a life that pleased me. And if you will believe in that son, if you will believe what he taught, if you will begin to fashion your life around his teachings, that pleases me. And so everything that he did, you can take as your own. Everything that he did, you can take as your own. And for a matter of fact, the citizenship kind of thing is perfect for that. It's like many, some of us were not born in America. But then you came in and citizenship was given to you. Not because you were born into it, but because it was given to you. And so here we are. We are all born separated from God. Not able to please him. And so he says, but I have one who pleases me greatly that I take great delight in. And so what the Bible says is, is that this, he says that God sent, that God so loved you and you and you and you and even Larry. He loved all these people. He loved all these people so much that he says, I'm going to send my son to live a perfect life and to pay the penalty for your sin because every man has sinned and every man is apart from me. And I want to bridge that gap between God and man. And so I sent Jesus to bridge that gap. And so he says, so you don't have to do anything. What you have to do is to believe that you can't save yourself. He says, you have to believe that you cannot earn favor with God yourself. You have to believe that Jesus did that already. So this morning... That's what this family we're studying here today was the precursor to that Messiah, to that Jesus, who came and lived a sinless life and died on the cross. And that death on the cross was the payment for the sins of all mankind. And God says, anyone who would like to have a certainty about eternity, anyone who would like to escape the guilt of their sins can believe in Jesus 
for the salvation and forgiveness of sins. If you've never done that today, I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you'd find someone you can talk to about that, the person sitting next to you, the person that brought you, the person maybe is a total stranger, because this is worthy talking to total strangers about. You can talk to me about it if you wanted to. Let me pray. Father, this morning, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the way that you had a plan from the very beginning of time, and that you are at work in our lives even when we can least see it. You are at work in our lives. Um, And as a matter of fact, I believe that every single one of us are in this room today, not because we chose to as much as it is because you are drawing all of us to yourself, and that was a part of your plan. Father, I pray that um, you would draw people who call themselves Christians who are living really apart from you in an apathetic or maybe even a rebellious way, that you would call them to yourself and you would draw them back to you into a vibrant, loving, exciting relationship. And Father, if there's anyone in this room today that does not know you as their personal Savior, I pray that today would be the day they would begin to ask the really important questions about what does it mean to believe in Christ. I pray that your, your spirit would be at work in the hearts of men and women and children to bring themselves to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.